Amen. Y'all ready to get into God's Word? Me too, so let's do that. Hey, for those of you that are just joining us, we are on a message series right now called Resilient, where we've been going through the book of James, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today's going to be the second installment of the series. And just to give a little bit of a quick recap from uh, the two weeks ago, thank you, Elton, didn't he do a great job? Thank you for jumping in there for me last minute. I called him the day before. I said, brother, I am down. But God knew that Elton was supposed to be here with a word for us. So thank you, my brother, my friend, my elder. I love you. So thank you. But um, a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to James. For those of you that don't know, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And even though he was born into Jesus' family, James initially had some doubts about his brother being the Messiah. And so we looked at the places in Scripture where James not only doubted, but even at times seemed to mock Jesus. And we took a whole message to just highlight this in order to understand who it was that wrote this beautiful epistle and even why he wrote it. I mean, James would have grown up watching Jesus live all all throughout his life, all the way up until his death. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it wasn't until the resurrection when Jesus uh, appeared to James that James become this fervent believer, which was a moment that just forever changed the trajectory of his life. And what I'd like to do, and, and just dive right into James if I could, so turn to the book of James, if you would, with me. We've got a lot that we're going to cover today, and so as you're turning there, if you, by the way, if you need help locating the book of James, it's right after the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit easier to find Hebrews than it is James, so if you land upon Hebrews, keep strolling, have no fear, it will be the next book. And I kind of have a feeling that today we might not make it past the first verse, so we may just camp out on James 1.1, and that'll be okay. We'll see how far we get. James 1, you guys look like you're there. James 1, verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, in the introduction of James' letter, I want to highlight two things. I want us to look at what's being said, but I want us to also acknowledge what's not being said. First of all, I want us to look at what's being said said or what isn't being said first. We'll do what isn't being said first. Like James could have easily started out his letter by saying that he's Jesus' brother, but he didn't. Actually, he didn't even say anything about himself other than this one thing, which we're going to look at here in just a minute. And I think probably that's for a good reason. And that's because, first of all, those to whom he was writing his letter, like James needed no introduction. His audience, they knew him. They knew who James was. And this is a little bit different than, oh, let's say, Paul, who uh, went into depth about who he was. Like, for example, in, in our last series in the book of Colossians, the people of Colossae had never uh, seen Paul in person. Certainly, they would have heard 
of him. And so for that reason, Paul had to share about his life so that they would know who this guy is that's writing this letter to them. Well, James, he didn't need to say any of those things because his audience, they knew him well. They would have known that he was James, Jesus' brother. They would have also known that James was also the one who had doubts about his brother being the Messiah. But I also wonder if perhaps the reason that James didn't say anything about being Jesus' brother was because he tried playing that card earlier. And things didn't work out for him quite like he would thought. If you remember a few weeks ago uh, when we read James, uh, that we find James along with his family trying to seize or to try to take control of Jesus. Like they thought that since they were his brothers, that they could just intervene and, and set Jesus straight. And so when we don't see James mentioning that he was Jesus' brother, I wonder if we're not seeing a sign of humility or maturity from James. Let me just take this second here and just use this as a teaching point. Anytime you have to let others know how educated you are, or how well-connected you are, you're tipping your hand and showing your insecurity. Secure people don't need to flaunt their credentials or connections because their identity is rooted in something far more substantial, their relationship with God. Jesus exemplifies, I'm sorry, James exemplifies this security with the one and the only thing that he says about himself. He said, I am James, servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like he didn't lay claim to his birthright of being Jesus' brother. He laid claim on being a servant. Now I mention that because we often lay claim to things that are of much lesser significance. What I mean is, many followers of Christ are quick to tell you about their accomplishments. They're quick to tell you about their education or about who they know. And certainly, James could have done all of those things, but he didn't introduce himself that way. He identified as a servant. And in so doing, I believe that he sets for us a perfect example for us to follow. <laughs> I'm reminded of the words of James's big brother, Jesus. In Matthew 23 and verse 11, when he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Henry Martin, the missionary to India and Persia during the 18th century, once said, I have rightfully no other business each day but to do God's work as a servant constantly regarding his pleasure. May I have grace to live above every human motive, simply with God and to God. I think that there was probably a big amen in heaven from James whenever Henry Martin wrote that, because there is no greater thing that we could ever do on this side of eternity or the other but than to serve. Why? 
Because serving takes our eyes off of us and it puts it on something much greater. Church, can I just bring your attention to this fact? Everyone is a servant, whether they realize it or not. The question is, what are you serving? Like, are you serving yourself? Or are you serving your own ambitions or intents? Or are you serving God and serving others? James understood the importance of this distinction, which is why he identifies himself simply as a servant of God, and the scripture says, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I want to do a little bit of a deep dive and take you a little deeper. So you guys are going to have to stay on your toes this morning because where I'm going from here, if you zone out and think you're going to check social media, you're going to jump back in this message and be like, what's he talking about? So just stay with me here. James starts by saying he's a servant of God, meaning that God is his master. That's what that word means there in the Greek. But then in the same breath, he says that he's also a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when James calls Jesus both Lord and Christ, which are the, the Greek words koreos and Christos, he's calling Jesus both master and Messiah. Now, keep in mind who it is that, that James was writing his letter to. I think that oftentimes whenever we read books of the Bible, we think that that book was written uh, just for us, and it is for us, but it's not just for us. See, whenever James wrote his letter initially, he did so fully intending that it was going to be the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered all over the world. That's who was going to be reading it. As a matter of fact, that's why he addresses his letter as such at the beginning. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He was writing to Jews who had received Jesus as their Messiah. You see, whenever James wrote his letter, you and I weren't even on his radar. But I love how God takes flesh and blood, like James, uses his perspective, and then by the leading of the Holy Spirit, uses him to write a letter that he thinks is only going to be read by the 12 tribes of, of Israel, but God in his sovereignty already knew and already purposed that James' words would be shared all over the world and one day in 2024 be shared at Destiny Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, like, wow, right there. Like, God knew that James's words, they carried a much broader impact. And here's the thing that, that I love, is that these words that he wrote to the 12 tribes, they are just as applicable to you and me today. Now, only God could do that. Only God could take 40 different people to write the scripture over a span of 1,500 years and three continents and three different languages and put them all together and cause them to all flow together in harmony under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God knew that all of those words would then one day be shared with us. So whenever James referenced the 12 tribes of Israel there in the beginning of his letter, yes, it was specific to them, but it was also written for us. 
And I feel like this right here is also a good teaching point uh, to share and to address because from time to time, I hear people say things like, well, the Bible wasn't written to us. Anyone ever heard anything like garbage like that before? Yeah, I've heard that. And here's the thing. When I hear that, like a lot of things go through my mind, but, but I can't help but to think this person just simply does not understand that what the Bible, it's not just some historical document. It's not just a collection of letters and, and poems, but the Bible is the living, breathing word of God, and it contains life in it. And while, yes, much of what was written was originally addressed to a specific people. It wasn't just limited to those people. The Word of God, it transcends both time and culture because it speaks to the universal human condition and it speaks to the deepest needs of the human heart. Its principles and its truths are just as applicable to you and I today as it was to the original recipients. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 4. He said, for everything that was written in the past, everything was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope to make it through what we're going through. Hope that sustains us in the times of doubt and uncertainty. Hope that the best is still yet to come. Hope that our children will carry out their God-ordained purposes. Hope that our friends and our family will all come to know Jesus. And hope that the dreams that God has placed in your heart will indeed come to pass. And so don't ever let anyone deceive you into thinking that God's word isn't applicable for our lives. Friends, God's word is the only thing that you can know for sure that is sure. Hey, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now let's look back to James chapter 1 because I want you to consider something. I mentioned that James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes of Israel, but I want to teach you a, I'm going to put my teacher hat on now instead of my preacher hat. I want, I want to teach you a kingdom principle regarding Israel. Israel means the chosen people of God, which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. It encompasses all those who have been grafted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Did you hear that? For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's powerful. Now, does that 
mean that we're to subscribe to replacement theology, meaning that the Christian church has replaced Israel in God's plan? Absolutely not. In Romans chapter 11, Paul uses a beautiful metaphor of an olive tree to explain how Gentiles, Gentiles just simply means non-Jewish people, how we have been grafted into the family of God through our faith in Christ. And in that metaphor, he tells us that the natural branch, which is Israel, is not to be discarded or replaced. Now, if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God's word. But rather that Gentiles now get to join in the blessing of God's promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's that mean for you and me, and why am I teaching you this? Because you need to know that the New Testament affirms the ongoing significance of Israel. That's why we're instructed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to pray that the nation of Israel would come to see Jesus as their Messiah. But I'm also teaching you this because I want you to know that the same promises that you read about for Israel, they are also applicable to you and me today. And so whenever the scripture says in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. You see, those benefits are not just limited to Israel, but to all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Or any time that we read about God's presence or his protection or his provision, those promises are not just for Israel, but they are for all who put their faith in Jesus. And this is at the heart of what it means to be grafted into the family of God. We, as Gentiles, are not replacing Israel, but we are included in their rich heritage and the promises that God has made to his people. It's a picture of expansion, not replacement. And I love this because that means it's not just the New Testament that's written for us, but all of his word. And so whenever I read God's word in Genesis and in Exodus and in Psalms, I can claim those promises as my own, not by displacing Israel, but by standing alongside them as part of God's extended family through faith in Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It transcends the cultural, ethnic, and historical boundaries. However, while we celebrate being grafted into God's family and sharing in the promises given to Israel, we must also remember a vital truth that lie at the heart of the gospel. Faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior is essential for everyone both Jew and Gentile alike. And that's not a message of exclusion, but one of profound love and invitation from God to all of humanity. And I say this for those who may not know. Look, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the prophesied about Messiah, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus, and he fulfilled every single one of them. And he is the fulfillment of being the Messiah, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, he says, I am the way. You want to know the way? 
It's me you're looking at. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This declaration does not provide a pass for anyone based on heritage, culture, or background, but instead it extends as an invitation to all, including the Gentiles, including the Jews, to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and to place their faith in him for salvation. So, let's jump back to James chapter 1 and verse 1 now that you have a good cultural, historical, and theological insight for James's greeting. The very first word that James writes in his letter is James. Now, that may not grab your attention at first, but do you know what James's Hebrew name is? Anyone? James is the Old Testament name Jacob. Yeah, sure is. Just like Jesus is the Old Testament name, anyone? Joshua, or more specifically pronounced Yahshua, if you want to say it with a Hebrew accent, right? <laughs> Which I think is really, really cool because we understand the significance of who Joshua was in the Old Testament, right? And we also understand the significance of who Jacob was. Now, for those of you that are still relatively new to the Bible, Jacob was the one who wrestled with God. And then he walked away with a limp. As a matter of fact, I talked about that in our series Storytellers a couple years ago. He also is the one who gets his brother Esau to sell him his birthright. Now, watch this. Isn't it interesting that both Jameses, the James of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, both Jacobs, the Jacob of the Old Testament and then the Jacob who we call James in the New Testament, they both struggled with their birthrights. But when we read James's letter or Jacob's letter, as you'd say it in Hebrew, we see it as just James. But to those who read his letter, his audience, they would have read it as Jacob. Now, this has great significance, and watch, here's why. If you remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, right? And so, to a Jew, hearing the name Jacob is synonymous with hearing the name Israel. And for those of you who, who, who may know, Jacob, he was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. I told you guys you're going to have to stay on your toes for all this, all right? I hope you're staying on your toes. So, here's Jacob. Right? Or Israel, or should I say, here's James or Jacob, who really they also think of as Israel, writing to the 12 tribes that have been scattered across the nation. And watch this. This right here is worth your price for admission today. Watch. Many scholars believe that the book of James was the first book to be written in the New Testament. Now, in case you didn't know, the books of your Bible, they were not ordered chronologically. You guys are aware of that, right? Meaning that the oldest isn't necessarily first. As a matter of fact, almost every scholar would agree that the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job, right? But yet whenever we put, you know, of the 66 books of the Bible and we ordered them chronologically, we put Genesis first because it kind of made sense in the terms of flow of reading. Now, here's what I find that is powerful. If James, and I have a feeling that it is, if James 
and the scholars are right, was the first book to be written in the New Testament. That means that James was the first to break the 400-year silence from God. Think about that. And who did God choose to be the one to break the silence? The guy who had doubts about Jesus. Wow. Now what's that mean for you and me? Well, it means something profound. Because if God can use a doubting mocker to be the first to bring a word from God following a 400-year silence, then what might God want to do with you? Church, I'm here to tell you that God has a long history of using the most unlikely individuals to accomplish his purposes. I mean, consider this. Abraham was too old. Isaac lied. Jacob cheated. Leah was ugly. I don't know. There's some hope for you guys there. Anyway, Moses stuttered. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy, they were too young. David wasn't an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Martha, she worried about everything. The Samaritan woman had been married five times and was working her way toward the six whenever Jesus came along and called her. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a murderer and Lazarus was dead. So what makes you think that God can't and won't use you? Hey, God loves restoring beautiful things. He's the repairer of the breach, the restorer past to dwell in, the prophet Isaiah says. And I love that God chose just James to pen the first words from God to the world. So when we read his letter to the 12 tribes, it would have sounded something like this to them from Israel. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. I mean, wow, when you see that in that context. Now, just in case you're wondering, why were the 12 tribes scattered? I feel like the teacher in me needs to share this. It was during that time that the Christians were being heavily persecuted from both the Roman Empire and from the Jewish authorities. And that persecution had led to the scattering of Jewish believers all throughout various regions. Hence, that reference to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And it also kind of sets the backdrop for much of what James goes on to write. And so you're going to hear me reference the 12 tribes that were under this heavy persecution all throughout this sermon series. And what was James' first message to the 12 tribes of Israel? He said, greetings, which is greetings, but it's actually the Greek word chairo, which means joy to you. James' letter to us kicks off a prophetic invitation. And the invitation is this, and this is a word for many of you. It's time to take your joy back. I said, it's time to take your joy back. Hey, 
Joy is your birthright in Christ. And no one has the right to take it from you. Look, they may be able to take your possessions. They may be able to take your position. They may be able to take away your prestige, but they can never take away your joy. Why? Because the world didn't give it, so the world can't take it away. Scripture says, weeping may last through the night, but joy, come on, someone say, but joy, but joy comes in the morning. Friend, I'm here to tell you that no matter what you may be going through, there is hope. And there is hope because joy comes in the morning. Hey, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're like the 12 tribes of Israel that we've been reading about, feeling as if God hasn't been taking your calls. Like God's been giving you the silent treatment. Well, I've got a prophetic word for you. You're about to reach the dawn of a new morning. I said you're about to reach the dawn of a new morning. Psalm verse 40 and verse 2 says this. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock. You know who that rock is? Jesus. And he gave me a firm place to stand. Hallelujah. I said hallelujah. I have a feeling this is going to be probably my favorite series that I have taught thus far, because if there's one thing that James, and you're going to see this as we go throughout the letter, teaches us, it's to be resilient, to stand firm in the face of adversity and to not shrink back, to rise above our circumstances and to live out our faith with boldness. And watch this, this we will do, this we will do if we will get our eyes fixed on the one who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think according to his power, which is at work within us. Can someone say amen to that? Amen. 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 Y'all receive God's word this morning? Amen. Amen. Stand to your feet with me if you would. I told you we wouldn't get past James 1.1 and it's 1130. Right on the money. I can't even make that happen if I wanted to. Hey, watch this. Here in a moment, the ushers are going to pass out communion elements as the worship team will then lead us into a chorus. After that, Pastor Daniel's going to lead us in communion. We decided several months ago, you're probably wondering, why are we doing communion so often? We made a a decision to do it monthly. I may go to weekly one one Sunday because I love communion. I love it. Um, And don't worry, um, as Pastor Daniel comes up, he'll give you some instructions. If you don't know what you're being handed as the ushers hand you something, just hold on to it, and he'll give you a little instruction. But before we even do that, I just want to ask who may be here this morning and you're not in relationship with Jesus but you would like to be you want that joy that we have been talking about today well my friend you can get it no other way but then through Jesus money won't bring you joy success won't bring you joy neither fame nor fortune can give it which is actually a good thing because as we said earlier they can't take what they can't give You see, the joy that comes from knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you have the promise of heaven and a purpose for living. Friends, nothing else can do that. Why? Because you were created to be in relationship with God and to worship God. And here's what I know about every single person that's ever lived. 
our empty hearts crave worship. Even to the most staunch atheist that's ever lived, they crave worship. They just don't realize it. You see, here's the thing. Everyone is worshiping something. They're either worshiping money, possessions, accolades, but no matter what they choose to worship, if it isn't God, it comes up short in all regards. And so here's what I'd like to do right now. I just want to ask who's here this morning, and you would like to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of surrender right now, one that says to God, God, I choose to put my faith in you. That doesn't mean that you have to know everything about God. You're not going to know everything about God. Friend, I don't know everything there is about God. And I got a couple degrees. Hello? You can't figure God out, but what you can do is you can experience him. You can know him. You can't figure him out, but you can know him. And so if that's you this morning, you say, I want to know God. I want to take that step. Even if it's a baby step that says, Jesus, I know that you're that Messiah that came to save not only the Jews in Israel, but the whole world. Guess what the Bible says? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him, put their faith in him, they would have everlasting life. If you want that everlasting life, if you want to have that promise of knowing that when you breathe your last breath, you're going to spend eternity in heaven with him. But even greater than that, that you get to be with him here on earth, that you're not alone, that you have his spirit with you who will lead you, who will guide you, who serves as what they call your paraclete, your helper, the comforter. You can have that right now. And so if that's you and you say, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, pray with me right now. Bow your heads, close your eyes, pray this prayer out loud. Saints of God that have prayed this prayer, you can join in. But we're going to all together just confess our need for a Savior, and we all need a Savior. Good people don't get into heaven, forgiven people do. Let me say that again. Good people don't get into heaven, forgiven people do. None of us are good enough to get into heaven. Perfection was demanded. That's the reason Jesus had to come, because he was the only perfect one. And so if you want to put your faith in the perfect one right now, pray this prayer from the bottom of your heart. Pray it out loud to God. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. Because I was born a sinner, I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave just as your word says. And now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.